All right. Hey, thank you, Ben, so much. Grateful to have you all here. Uh, we're so glad that so many of you are joining us this morning, uh, family, friends, uh, and for our regular attenders, grateful to have you here as always. Um, if you're visiting this morning and you're finding, our, you're finding yourself in the middle of a teaching series we've been doing called Engendered Species, Rediscovering the Beauty of God's Design, and here's what we believe, that we find ourselves in a world that is in the middle of deconstructing what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and in that we want to speak into that and rediscover the beauty of God's design for what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and how the two should relate. And so just to bring you up to speed um, quickly on that, here's where we've been. And we began this series by asking this question first of all. Number one, is there a moral authority on this issue? In other words, is it just the smartest person in the room who wins? Is it the most influential voice that will take the day? Or is there actually a place we can go to find truth quote-unquote, on this issue. So putting my cards on the table, I went back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God. So for me, this is where it is for me. There is a moral authority on this issue, and I believe it's found in the scriptures that God, if he created in the beginning, and he's the one who created, he has a right to speak to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. So then we went next, and we talked about value and dignity, and we said this, that humanity, both men and women, have value because of God's image. You want to talk about gender equality, then let's talk about understanding what that means, that equality means understanding that we have equal value before God because of our image, and that if God is the one who made male and female, that God created, as this says now, God's image includes gender distinction that God created male and female. And in that, if we want to pull down and diminish, or let's say get rid of gender distinction, we are actually choosing to become less than more. We're choosing to, to experience less of what God has designed us for than more. We're aiming for what I think is an incomplete kind of life, to, to remove gender distinction, that God created that. So the question then, if that's true, if God created in his image, and he created both male and female in that image, what does it mean to be a man? And that's the question we asked, what is a man? This morning, you're going to get a great opportunity to interact because we're going to ask the corollary question in a minute of what it means to be a woman. Here's what we said about what it means to be a man. Here's what I defined it, and we interacted with this. I said this, what it means to be a man, we went to Genesis chapter 2 for this, that a man is a biologically born male who grows into his role of headship by using his strength to serve those around him through ordering the world for their benefit. It's easy, fits on a bumper sticker, right? This is a, this is a big deal, it's a mouthful, and it all means something. We talked a couple weeks ago about, about that, and last week we talked about how that presses out into life, into uh, home life, into church life, family, parenting, work life, what that looks like. Uh, throughout. Okay, we talked about roles. This week, and this is, this is a, so exciting, we get to answer this question, what is a woman? <laughs> we had talked about having a couple of the elders up here with suits on, all right, and like sunglasses, just to kind of offer some support, all right, for this kind of message. Thought that might be appropriate uh, to, to go that way, but we're just going to roll into it, okay? Now, I have little experience on this issue personally, okay? Uh, that being said, um, we're, we're still going to roll into this. Let me say this, that here's my hope for you, all right, here's my hope for you, that by the time we're done here, and by the way, we're going to have part two next week on what it means to be a woman, and next week is going to be the role of a woman, so I'm going to lay out a definition for you. You get to interact with that definition whether you like it or not, okay? I'm just going to tell you what I think. 
you get to decide whether you think I'm on to something or not. All right, that's, that's going to be your deal. And then next week we go on to roles and what that might look like. But here's my hope by the end of this and next week as well, that if you're a woman or a young woman in particular here, that you will, will leave understanding and feeling this. That of, of all the world religions, okay, of, of all the places, the systems that you can put yourself in, Christianity brings, in my opinion, the greatest value, dignity, and honor, hope, vision, courage for what it means to be a woman. And so, consequently, if you leave feeling like, I feel diminished, I feel pushed aside, I feel like I can't express my fullness, something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. Whether in how I've communicated to you or what you've heard or whatever, but something has gone wrong. I am married to a woman whom I love very much. I have daughters, I have a mom, I have a sister. I have a hope for our young women in this church that you will have the courage and the vision to blow the roof off of this place. That your expression of your faith and your individuality will provide an amazing example for everyone to follow. I want to flesh that out. And so if in this message, by the end of it, you get something different than that heart to you, then something has gone wrong. I want to still press out what this means. Now, because I have very little experience in being a woman personally, I need to go to a woman to explain to me what's going on, all right? So here's the deal. I want to kind of frame up where we are culturally with um, what it means to be a woman, um, Again, I'm going to just lean on uh, someone else. Uh, Nancy Gibson. I want to go to Nancy Gibson. She wrote an article in Time Magazine, 2009, called What Women Want Now. So I'm going to quote a woman to you now, just so you know. Here's what she was writing then. In 2009, very interesting year, by the way, culturally, um, at least in relation to, to, uh, to some of my studies. Here's what she says. If you were a woman reading this magazine 40 years ago, the odds were good that your husband provided the money to buy it that you voted the same way he did, and that if you got breast cancer, he might be asked to sign the form authorizing a mastectomy, that your son was headed to college but not your daughter, and that your boss, if you had a job, could explain that he was paying you less because, after all, you were probably working just for pocket money. It's funny, she writes, how things change slowly until the day we realize that they've changed completely. It's expected that by the end of the year, 2009, For the first time in history, the majority of workers in the U.S. will be women, largely because of the downturn in the economy has hit men so hard. This is an extraordinary change in a single generation, and it is gathering speed. The growth prospects, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, are in typically female jobs like nursing, retail, and customer service. More and more women are the primary breadwinner in their household, almost 40%, or are proving Uh, providing essential income for the family's bottom line. Their buying power has never been greater, and their choices, she writes, have seldom been harder. Now, in 1972, Time Magazine did another article. They did another special in the middle of what we now call the women's lib movement, women's liberation movement. In the middle of that movement, they wanted to do a study on is it working or what progress are we making if we're emphasizing women's lib, what's going on, you know, what's happening. So here's what they said back in 1972. They were talking about some of these um, 
progresses, whatever you want to call it, in the, in the movement. Here's what they said, that women's wages in the 70s actually had fallen relative to men's. So this is the immediate impact of their assessment. Secondly, that fewer women were in the top ranks of civil service under 2% than four years prior. They said then that at that point in the 70s, there were no women in the cabinet since Eisenhower. There are no female FBI agents. There are no female network news anchors, no female Supreme Court justices. Harvard's tenured faculty of 421 included only six women. And finally this, in the Museum of Modern Art, they had 1,000 one-man shows in 40 years. And only five of those 1,000 were women. 995 were men's shows. This is what is happening in 1972, according to Time. This is their research on women's lib and what's going on. So if you grew up in this time frame or you're impacted with that, you may resonate with that, and you may all of a sudden be like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's kind of what that was like. Or you're like, yeah, I certainly remember that. If you don't, I just want you to know, this is where we've been historically in the U.S. in our modern history. Now, let me kind of take this from 1972 to 2009 and kind of draw that to where we are. Just I want you to see the difference of what's going on. If you like charts, this is going to be awesome for you. In 1972, only 7% of high school athletes were female. In 2009, 42% of high school athletes were female. 6%, or excuse me, 600% increase in the number of high school athletes who are female. Secondly, in college in the 70s, the 1970s, 60-40 male domination split. Okay, there's 60% male, 40% women. That is reversed 2009. 60-40 female. That might be a reason if you're a guy to go to college. I don't know. All right, here we go. Third one. In 1972, less than 10% of the law and medical degrees were given to women. Approximately now 50% of law and medical degrees are achieved by women. Fourthly, no Ivy League presidents were women at that time. In 2009, half of Ivy League presidents are women. Here we go, number five. There are no female secretaries of state. Three of the last four have been women by 2009. There is movement here. One foundation existed in 1972 to empower women. By 2009, over 145 foundations existed to empower women with the belief that if we get to women and we train women and educate women... They are a key to solving poverty-related issues. They're kind of the missing link, if you will. That's a big jump. Continuing on to family life, 12% of children in the early 70s were born to single women. By 2009, 39% of children are born to single women. That's a big jump. Finally here, over 50% of kids were raised by a stay-at-home parent in the early 70s, and less than a third of kids are raised by a stay-at-home parent now. By the way, on those last two demographics, two-thirds of the people polled in this said that that is a bad thing, not a good thing. Here's what, here's what she had to say. Here's what Nancy Gibson wrote as a summary to her article. She said this, Among the most confounding changes of all is the evidence tracked by numerous surveys that as women have gained more freedom, more education, and more economic power, they have become less happy. Interesting. I'm not going to assess that one way or the other. I'm just going to tell you this is a woman's perspective on women's issues. That of all of this, women have become less happy. Is she right? I don't know. This is what she's saying. Maybe, my question is, maybe the target is wrong. Maybe what women are aiming for might be off focus. Here's what Maria Shriver did. She, um, you may know Maria Shriver, she uh, in 2009 as well partnered with the Center for American Progress and did a, 
um, countrywide study, ended up writing a, a paper, essentially, called A, uh, a Woman's Nation Changes Everything. And, uh, and here's what she said. She said, Our policy landscape remains stuck in an idealized past where the typical family was composed of a married-for-life couple with a full-time breadwinner and full-time homemaker who raised the children herself. She's saying that's the context in which our policies for our country exist. That's their worldview. She ended up um, creating a bunch of women's conferences. They, they were sold out in a hurry, and she said, uh, she wrote about this, that she couldn't provide workshops enough. You, you do one on leadership, would fill up. You do one on homemaking, would fill up. You do one on working outside the home, would fill up. You do one on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship. I mean, it would fill up, it would fill up, it would fill up. She couldn't do enough to keep up with the demand. So she writes this. I wondered what was going on. I talked to the women. They filled out the questionnaires. I learned women are hungry for something that's missing in their lives, and that is a place to connect. They say they feel increasingly isolated, invisible, stressed, and misunderstood. They say that the news media, where I've worked for 30 years, she says, don't accurately reflect their lives anymore. They say women on TV shows and in the movies certainly don't either, and they can't believe how out of touch government is with who women are today and what they need to survive. They can't understand how slow business has been in figuring out how to retain, support, and promote women. They lament that many faith institutions want women to be volunteers, but won't give them a seat at the table, let alone a place at the altar. They're terrified how quickly their family finances could be wiped out by a child's catastrophic illness or a parent's Alzheimer's. And they're exasperated that pundits and pollsters continue to jam women into convenient boxes with labels like soccer moms or security moms. She finished with this. She said, back in 1960, President Kennedy talked about the torch being passed to a new generation. Well, five decades later, the torch is being passed to a new gender. There's no doubt in my mind that we women will lift that torch, we will carry it, and we will light a new way forward, Maria Shriver, in her report 2009. In all of this, what in the world does it mean to be a woman today? What does it mean? I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to aim at? What is your target? What should it be? More education? More opportunities? Greater fulfillment? I mean, what, 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 what should it be in the middle of deconstructing typical gender stereotypes? In the process of deconstruction, if we deconstruct so far that we have nothing left to wrap a framework around of how we think, we're left with very little to aim at, and when that happens, it leads to great disappointment. What do we do? And this is where I'd like to inject. This is where I'd like to inject. Back to the first question, is there a moral authority on this issue? Is there something we can go to, to speak to? I've already put my cards on the table, and that is, I believe, if God creates, he provides clarity. So I'd like to invite you to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to the book of Genesis. I want to take you to see what God has to say. You get to interact with this and, and mentally, in your heart, kind of process what's going on and, and see how that lands for you. But here's where I want to go. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis uh, is the first book in the Bible. Many of you know that. Uh, chapter 2, um, first, second page in. You should find that without a problem. If you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, by the way, that Bible in the pew around you is our gift to you. We would love to have you take that, uh, have that, and carry on from there with that. All right. But Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, and I'm only going to go through verse 18 this morning. There's a lot to pack in there. We're going to get right on it. But I need to set up the context uh, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. 
15, 16, and 17. Here we go. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Pause it right there. This is important. If you've been in church before and you've heard this, just, just back up and think again about this context. We have to understand this. God gives the man a commission, right? It's like you go to work in the morning and the boss says, here's what I want you to do, right? This is your job for the day. This is what you are to do. I'm commissioning you. I want you to accomplish certain things. This is what's going on. This is your project to do. God gives that to the man. I want you to work it and take care of the garden. This is what's happening. He lays that out there in verse 15. He put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. There you go, Adam. There is your job. Make it happen. And then verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, hey, when you get hungry, when it's time for your lunch break, man, go eat from any tree in the garden. Just you know, have at it. It's there for you, right? But, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will surely die. In other words, get to work, but there's a problem here. I want you to avoid something. I want you to avoid a tree. Now, <laughs> men, let me just talk to you for a minute. What, what do you do when someone tells you you're not allowed to do something? I mean, right, it doesn't take long. Right? You're kidding me? You're telling me not to do that? Why? Why and boom, we're on it. Like, it is really hard to resist that reality. So he just... Let's slow down to the context. This is what God has done. He said, I want you to work, Adam. Take care of the garden. By the way, avoid one tree, but man, have at the rest of it. And then, just let's allow this history to follow through, and then God stops and thinks about it for a minute. And then verse 18 comes into play. This is where it comes into play. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, look at the text there, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 18. Such a big verse, but so important to understand how it starts. It starts right after God gives the commission to the man, work it, take care of it, and then it's almost as if your boss might say to you at the beginning of the day, man, you need to go do that, but I'm not giving you the tools to do it well. Like, I've just told you to do a job, and unless I support you in what I've told you to do, it will not be good. So look at the text again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight it up here, what I want you to see. He, God, first of all, says, he assesses this, it is not good. It's not good. If you know chapter 1 at all, chapter 1, God is constantly, as he creates, Declaring of his creation, the, the Hebrew word is tov, T-O-V, or we, we transliterate it T-O-B. Tov, it is good. It is good day one. Hey, it's good. Day two, that's yeah, good. Day three, good, 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 good. This is the time where God, who just declares all of creation good, he stops, and of this one thing, he says, it is not tov. It is not good. This should hearken us back to make us think, whoa, in contrast to everything that God said in chapter one, this as the one who assesses all things, he realizes, wait, 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 we have a problem. This is not good. What isn't good? It isn't good, and the text continues, for the man to be alone. Now, many of you have been used to thinking of for the man to be alone, meaning, oh, well, the woman came because the poor guy was lonely. What else is there? That's what the Bible says. And so, some of us think 
that the reason that woman came along was to be the ultimate companion for man and to simply make him not be lonely anymore. Isn't that nice? I mean, look, that poor lonely guy. And if that is your view, the highest ceiling then for a woman is you better find a man and make him not lonely. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, if that is what you've been created for, then do it. Find a man and just make him not, just find any man and just make him not lonely. Man, you have carried out God's design for a womanhood. I understand the assumption of why we think loneliness is at the heart of it, but what just happened in the context is God set out man to work and take care of, and he's like, I am not giving you the tools to succeed for the job that I have for you to do. You need somebody to help you do the work ahead of you. You can't do it alone. And so what I'm going to do is, the text continues, I will make, this is my idea, God says, I am assessing this. Adam is not asking for it. Adam doesn't aware of it. God realizes in a hurry, this is not good. I will choose as God to make a helper suitable for him. He's just not going to be able to do the work alone. This is not... First of all, man, we need this poor guy to have some friendship. That's what we need, because look how sad he is, all pitiful Adam by himself. There's work to do. You can't get it done well on your own, so I'm going to make someone to help you. Now, there is this belief that somehow being called a helper diminishes value for a woman. Let's just put that out there, and we can often feel that, and I get that. The Hebrew word azer, E-Z-E-R here, means nothing uh, it connotes nothing about inferiority. God himself is described as an azer or a helper. In the Psalms, in Psalm 20, in Psalm 121, 124, God is spoken of as a helper. In Exodus, God is spoken of as a helper. God himself is spoken of as a helper. If that is true, track with me on this, if God describes himself and the care that he offers as azer or being a helper, then this is very important then the word itself cannot inherently imply inferiority. Because to say that God is inferior to the one he helps is foolishness. God is not inferior to the one he helps. Let me put it this way. Like a couple minutes ago, Ben was up here leading worship. All right, Ben is better than I am at leading worship. But listen, my responsibility, kind of written into my job description, is I oversee worship on a Sunday morning at Grace Point Church. It's my responsibility to carry that out and to oversee that and to manage that and lead that and serve that and all that. And so what do I do? I'm like, we have to sing. It will not be good if I lead the singing. I know that. And so I need a helper, quote-unquote, suitable. So what do I do? I say, Ben, you are stronger than me. I am weak in this area. I need your strength to help. It doesn't mean he's inferior. It means, if anything, I'm inferior. Right? I mean, this is the, the essence of helping. Being a helper doesn't mean that you are, you know, five years old just offering, you know, a little bit of lemonade or Kool-Aid to your dad who's doing the real work of building the deck. And, oh, I'll be dad's helper. I won't be able to contribute, think, or do it. No, 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 no. This is not the essence. Ben is helping create something that is filling out a weakness of mine. This is the reality. The helper brings strength to the one with the responsibility to, to do this. This is the way it works. So God's role 
is the same as what he describes the woman as. So let's push this out a little bit. The rest of the story, then God forms the woman out of the man. All right, he's like, I need a helper suitable for him. Adam, I'm going to take the rib. All right, I'm going to make a woman. I'm going to seal you back up. Here we go. Here's your helper suitable for, for you. Carry on with the work of what I've asked you to do. Now, with that context, all right, with that context, I hope that that helps you understand how I'm going to work a definition. Now, I'm going to deliver to you a definition right here, right now, of what I think a woman is. <laughs> right. So don't laugh too much, all right? But that is background. Those are some of the things I believe about Genesis, and, and I hope this is clarifying. And again, you get to push back whatever you want to do on this. All right, we can talk about this however you want to do it. But I'm going to explain it, and then we're going to walk through this process and what we mean by it. All right? So here's what I would do if I were to talk about what is a woman. A uh, very difficult question. I think we understand that. But we also need clarity around it. If we don't have clarity, we aim for whatever in the world our culture says we should aim for. Then we end up in a Time Magazine article that says no matter what we try to do, at the end of the day, Women are saying they're still less happy than they were before. Why? What are we aiming for? What does it mean to be a woman? Let me try to bring some clarity here. All right, here we go. So what is a woman? Let me suggest this. Let me offer this to you. A woman is a biologically born female who functions as an indispensable partner to the man in carrying out the work of human flourishing. I'm going to walk through that slowly because it can be kind of a mouthful. Let's talk about that. First of all, a woman is a biologically born female. We've talked about this, if you've been with us in this series, that I'm not talking about a woman who um, describes herself as a woman or identifies as a woman. A man, for example, a biologically born male who's like, I just want to be a woman, I'm going to be a woman. No, I'm talking about biologically born female, okay? We've talked about that before. Who functions as an indispensable partner. Now, that, that is so important. This is where I get uh, this idea from in Genesis 2, verse 18. The God is like, I am determining this is not good. This is, this is so critical. The woman is God's solution to move something from not good to good. The woman brings the answer to the question of how do we make a world that would not be good without her good. The answer is create woman. Therefore, if that's true, a woman is indispensable to human flourishing, is indispensable to the task of working and taking care of the ground, of working and taking care of our culture, our church, our community, our families. That a woman is absolutely indispensable. In fact, where a woman is not present or influential, we could describe it as not good. My wife was away at the women's retreat yesterday all day. Let me tell you, not good. That this partnership that exists moves an assessment of a situation from not good to good. And so when I mean an indispensable partner, I mean absolutely indispensable. Cannot do without. In fact, if we do without, we go back in time, or we go back and make things that, that were good bad. Like, let's not have the woman involved. Bad. Like, let's not consider the woman Bad. I mean, we move back to before God assesses situations that I've worked for the man to do. Whoa, he can't do it alone. Not good for him to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him to carry out the work of what he's supposed to do. An indispensable partner. I continue with the next phrase. Those next three words I want to talk about and flesh out a little bit to the man. I'm going to come back to them in just a minute. And carrying out the work of human flourishing. Again, I believe that the woman's highest goal is not to just make a man not lonely anymore. 
That's, that's way too small. It's way too limiting. That a woman has an indispensable part in the work that the man has been commissioned to do. The woman's role in that is to come right alongside and help make it happen. Just like in this case, Ben makes worship much better than if I were to try to do all of this on my own. In my weakness, he fills in with his strength. This is part of the deal, as do our other worship leaders, you know, Greg, Jan, and actually all of those who get up here to sing and, and lead. That's just part of the deal. That the, the role of the woman is to move forward with the work of human flourishing, not just to make a man not lonely. That's, that's so important to understand. Now, let me talk about this phrase, to the man. Uh, I need to address this. This is probably the most difficult phrase because the woman is introduced, and we've got to be just clear with the text, the woman is introduced into history in contrast or comparison to the man. The man is not introduced in comparison to the woman. No one exists. Man is created. And then woman comes and is understood in the text in relation to man. Thus enter a lot of problems, a lot of struggle, and things can get wacky in a hurry. And I understand that, and I just want to try to talk about that. By understand it, I mean it intellectually. Again, never been a woman, all right, just to be clear with that. All right, anyway, here we go. To the man, that there is a relationship, an indispensable partnership to the man. Now, I could have left that out of this definition. I wrestled with that, but I felt like I can't in order to be true to the text. That there is a to-the-man relationship here that exists within the book of Genesis that I have to try to address and wrestle with and fight with the tension of that. And so I left that in there, that there's a to-the-man partnership. Now, here's, here's the struggle. A couple of questions, and I want to press into this a little bit. First... If I'm saying that a woman um, functions as an indispensable partner to the man, what if the man is a lazy blah, 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 blah? What of that? What about the man who doesn't do anything? What about the man who is for himself and really marries somebody, for example, and he just wants to have a mom with benefits? Okay, I mean, what, what of that man? I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. The men who don't show initiative, who aren't creative... What should a woman do then? Should she just wait for a man to lead and wait for my orders for the day from a man? Is that what I'm saying? That you're an indispensable partner to the man as long as the man is courageous, bold, and shows initiative? No. Categorically, no. It's not even the biblical model, right? We can look at Deborah. We can look at Ruth. We can look at others in the Old Testament, even rolling into the New who are both honored by Jesus Christ as well as their stories are told in the Old and New Testament of women who showed initiative even in the face of male passivity. So let me be clear. I'm not saying that women must wait for men to act before they act. If you're a woman here, a young woman, you do not need to wait for men to act categorically before you act. Now, we're going to talk about the nuances of that even more next week. Secondly, am I saying that a woman's best value is found in relationship to a man? In other words, you bring the greatest value when you help a man and don't bring value if you don't. Again, to come back to this, I don't think that God created a woman to make a man not lonely. I think he created a woman to help with the work of human flourishing. And so your, your role is not, first of all, if I can cut this this way, I want you to understand this, your responsibility is more to God than man. It wasn't man's idea to create woman, it was God's. So if God created woman, the responsibility you have as a woman is first of all to God and carrying on the work of human flourishing, and secondarily to the man you're to partner with. And we're going to talk about what that means. But third, 
I still leave this phrase in here to the man. But I believe that God has given men a responsibility to work and care for the world, and that women, women, are created to help with that responsibility. But not in an inferior way, in case I need to say that again. This is still in play. Now here's the big problem with that, is that the system is broken. It doesn't take long for you to realize that men are deeply flawed. And I will not pretend to know what it's like to be a woman who's been in an abusive relationship, who's been um, hurt by men who have been untrustworthy, who have not been for their good, whether that's fathers, uncles, pastors, coaches, teachers, bosses, men who have um, been into their own benefit and not the benefit of you as a woman. I, I, don't, I haven't experienced that. I'm not going to try to pretend that I know what that's like. But I know it exists, intellectually at least. Okay, I, understand, I understand it from an intellectual standpoint. And so what should we do? Should we throw the system away because it's broken? Should we give up on something because I know too many men who are good for nothings? Should I give up on something because the men around me don't display any of these characteristics? You know, what should I do? When I grew up, my sister was two years older than me. Believe it or not, she's still two years older than me. So I need to clarify that. I was told, I was given a model. I was told, Tim, you need to share your stuff with your sister. It's a dumb model. See, my sister, my sister did not like to play with me. She would read. Well, she played with me, but never to the degree that I wanted her to. She loved to read books. I loved to kick stuff and throw things. All right, that, that was a fundamental difference that we had. So I, would, I remember one time, you know, I'd build Lincoln Logs in my, my, uh, my room in Barbados, and um, she got mad at me for something that was not my fault whatsoever. And um, she walks into my room, and she kicks the Lincoln Logs. Like, I had not just one house built, but I had the whole like, community set up. <laughs> You know, they're gone, annihilated, can't even find some of them anymore. Share your stuff. Really? My sister has hit me on the head with a badminton racket. On purpose, with the side of it, not the front of it. Like, I'm serious, true story, right? Like, share your stuff with your sister. No, wait, you don't know, you don't know my sister. The system has broken. If she were up here and had the microphone, she would say, Tim, you're right. No, she would say, man, are you kidding me? Share my stuff with you? <laughs> All you want to do right, is go outside and kick stuff. You're never satisfied with the amount of time that I give to you. You're always making, when I do play with you, you make fun of me because I'm not as good as you at ping pong or soccer or whatever. And you want me to share my stuff with you? That system is broken. <laughs> yeah, the system is broken. but should I share my stuff? Should I give up on the system that's broken? Should I give up on learning how to get along with people who offend me? Should I give up on a system that's broken? If this system, a woman relating to the man is broken, let me ask you this, is this a surprise to God? Is he sitting there like, you have got to be kidding me. Men failed? I had no idea that would happen. 
if God is aware of what would have happened, why would he create this in the first place? If God is aware that men would fail women, and men would serve themselves, why would he even create this thing at all? Somewhere along the line, God had to have hope that there could be something redeemed from all of this. That in the middle of man's brokenness and woman's brokenness, there could be something that would be redeemed. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like? And you've seen this in fits and starts in your life. Where a woman helps leads, creates, innovates, helps a man who is a fool. And the result is human flourishing. Can you imagine what it would be like where a man uses his strength to serve and order the world well for a woman who is not interested in any of that and is critical and angry toward the man's leadership? You've seen that. And when that happens... It is a perfect picture of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A system that is full of sinners making each other upset, struggling with power, struggling with egos, struggling to figure out how do we work together and failing constantly, and yet still wrestling with the commission to be for human flourishing. And when it works, when the system works, and when as a boy, I say to my sister, yeah, you can have that. My parents fall on the floor and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. There's hope somewhere. And what if, as we try to figure out how men and women work together for human flourishing, that this model of Genesis chapter 2 that's been around for thousands of years is actually the target that we should have been shooting for all along. One pastor and theologian, John Piper, put it this way, and I love how he says it, and with this I'm going to wrap it up. He says this, We resist the impulses of a chauvinistic dominating and abusive culture on the one side, and the impulses of a sex-blind, gender-leveling, unisex culture on the other side, as if those are the only two ways we can handle this issue. Either you're going to be a chauvinistic male pig, or you're going to have no distinction between male and female whatsoever. So we reject either side of that. And We take our stand between these two ways of life, not because the middle ground is a safe place, which it is emphatically not, but because we think this is the good plan of God in the Bible for men and women. And this is what I want to offer to you to consider. What does it mean to be a woman? To be an indispensable partner. Indispensable partner to the man in the work carrying on the business of human flourishing. Now, what does that look like in the home, as a wife, as a mom, as a single young lady? 
What does it look like in the church? What does it look like at work? Next week, I'll answer all those questions. <laughs> Next week, we're going to push this out into the roles of women. But hear me well. If in any way this morning you have leaving here feeling like, man, what a low, dim view of women. Somewhere we've miscommunicated, somewhere I have not leveled to you, that I believe that the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ offers to women and to men the greatest hope for life and fulfillment of life and life to the fullest. That God has created you women as indispensable partners. Absolutely indispensable in the work of human flourishing. Without you, things go from good to not good. And when we figure out how we work together, it is a beautiful picture. The hope of Jesus Christ to the world. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we can return to, we can come back to anchor on. We can also wrestle with and fight with. Some here this morning may be in agreement, nodding along, appreciating, embracing the values represented here. Others here might be like, you've got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous, man. We're going back in time. And Father, I pray that the truth of your word, that your spirit would move in us, allow us to, to fight with and wrestle with this and bring clarity to what in the world does it mean to be a woman. And I pray for our women here this morning, for our young women in particular. Father, I pray that there may never be a belief that as a woman they should be passive or reactionary, or just pretty and nothing else. That great meaning and vision, fearlessness, movement, desire for growth, expansion, development, and help could be birthed in their hearts so they could move to great action. And when I say blow the roof off this place, I mean that quite, quite literally, that there can be a movement within our young women of great empowerment and encouragement and strength to carry on with the work of human flourishing. And when passive men are, are in the way, there can be wisdom and savvy on how to work that through without losing the fire in their heart for the benefit of humanity, for the hope of the gospel. For our young men here who are intimidated by smart women, by women who have passion and care and love, and I pray that you would put us in our place. And help us to remember the hope of the gospel for all of us in the middle of our failures that you come to meet us where we are. So give us courage to pursue you, to follow you, to wrestle with what we disagree with, and to find ourselves at your feet thankful for your good grace and your sovereignty in all things. We give you praise for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.